Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tribe Call Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Ow! What's up? What is up? I'm your host, Ellie Einhorn. Welcome back to the Talk House Podcast. Last month, Battle's Ian Williams and Lee Ronaldo of Sonic Youth chopped it up in front of a completely packed out house at the grand opening of the new flagship Everlane store in Williamsburg for a live Talkhouse podcast taping. The two legendary guitarists cover a lot of ground in this conversation, including the unexpected processes of making their new LPs, Sonic Youth versus Wilco's insane touring guitar collections, how a chance encounter with Lasavi Fav led to the first ever Battle show, the cross-genre pollination of 1980s New York, and thoughts on recently departed icons Rick Ocasek of the Cars and Daniel Johnston. But before we jump into the talk, let's check out some of Lee and Ian's most recent music. From Lee's 2017 Electric Trim LP, which was a collaboration with Spanish producer Raul Refri and author Jonathan Lethem, here's Thrown Over the Wall. And now from Battle's brand new record, Juice Be Crips, that just dropped, check out Fort Green Park. is 100% one of my albums of the year. I love it. Listeners, stay tuned after the talk today. There's a great audience Q&A. Check it out. Hey, hey, I'm Ellie Einhorn. I host the Talk House podcast. Can we please welcome Everlane to Williamsburg? We're so glad to have you guys here. About three blocks from our office. This is great for us. We are so excited to be celebrating the launch of Everlane here in Williamsburg and their new men's uniform collection with two legendary locally based musicians and artists. One of the things that we really dug about Everlane is that they do something called radical transparency with their product, which is they only use ethically sourced factories, the best fabrics, and then actually tell their audience the price point for each part of the process as they make the garment and then what they make from the garment from sales. I think that's really dope. We try to do a similar thing at the Talk House where we really want to take away the interviewer. We want to take away the idea of the press as moderator, and we want to get a radically transparent conversation between artists and to really let the artist's voice shine. So to that end, I'm very excited to introduce a couple of guys who have met once before on the Talkhouse podcast a few years back, and we're so happy for the rematch. Lee Ronaldo is an art rock experimental music legend. He came to prominence as a founding member of Sonic Youth and has since released an amazing catalog of collaborative and solo records. He recently dropped an LP with Jim Jarmusch, and his new record, 
is out February 20th on mute. The first tracks are going to start coming out in mid-November. And Lee is working with Raul Refree on this record. It's called Names of North End Women. Ian Williams cut his teeth in Pittsburgh post-rock pioneers Don Caballero and went on to form the groundbreaking group Battles. Their new record, Juice Be Crypt, is out October 18th on Warp. Features some amazing collaborations. Senor Rubino, Shabazz Palaces, Tune Yards. Yes's John Anderson is on this record. It's awesome. I've heard it. It is one of the most anticipated records of 2019. Give it up for Lee Ronaldo and Ian Williams. I was just saying backstage that that's so insane that Jan Anderson is on your record from Yes. That's yeah. really, that's a, that's a kind of a coup. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we're mid-conversation, but uh, I'm, I'm Ian and from I'm Battles. Lee. That's Lee. Yep. And uh, we both have new records coming out, right? We do. We do. When is yours coming, actually? It's coming out October 18th. Okay, so yours yeah. is coming sooner than, than mine is not coming till yeah. February. Yeah. But... Uh, my record is a pretty radical departure for me. And is it safe to say that yours is as well? I mean, listening to it, it, it felt like you're kind of moving into some new stuff there. Yeah, I think it's always kind of the formula is changing a bit. Although I've been told that it still sounds like battles, which was maybe an issue because we lost another member on this record. Another? Yeah, because we were four-piece, three-piece, yeah. now it's a two-piece. Really? Yeah. Well, that's funny because my new group is a two-piece as well, actually. I saw that based on the name. Yeah, yeah, we're a, we're a duo. Does the group have a name besides just your name? It's just got, uh, I, my, my new record is a collaboration with a guy that I've been collaborating with over the last couple of years, but this is the first time we're putting both our names on the cover. And he's a Barcelona artist named Raul Refri. Oh, and yeah. uh, it's, it's got both of our names on the cover this yeah. time, for the first time. And you know, so last night, Lee let me hear a few clips of his new record, so I didn't get to hear too much. Yeah. But, uh, you know, like a thing that I always loved about Sonic Youth and, and, and a lot of your solo records, you know, it walked right up to the, the abyss. It was like song structure and pop form sometimes, but it was still like staring at the, the edge until like... And so I, I was wondering, like, it, it sort of sounded like you know, the next day, like after that. Uh -huh. Like, where do you, how do you pick up uh -huh. again and, it's, and it's, do a new thing? It's funny to talk about two records that you haven't heard. So that's, that's a little bit strange. Uh, so, Dancing uh, about architecture. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Who said that? Zappa, yeah. But you know, we, I've been collaborating with this guy for a while and we wanted to make a record, uh, the last record, you know, I brought in all these demos and we started from there and kind of built them up. And this record, we just started from basically from nothing. We just started kicking ideas around in the studio. And we knew we wanted to make a different kind of record that wasn't really a rock and roll record, like more of a landscape-y kind of record. Like we were referencing a lot of different things like Ryuchi Sakamoto and you know, like a lot of more... Um, just non-rock references really played a big part in this record. And there's a lot of electronic beats and electronic sounds. There's, the, the weirdest thing for me is that there's not a lot of guitar on this record, which makes it, for me, a pretty radical uh, departure. Right. And there's, you know, there's a lot of vocalizing and singing, which we knew that we wanted to have. And I, I don't know, for me, it's, it's kind of the most different record that I've ever done in my life, in a way, in terms of being kind of unexpected sounding. 
Yeah, I noticed, yeah, there was a few songs, you had some loops and things like that, but you, you, you've had loops in the past, but yeah, this we've was had a different loops kind of thing. And, and, you know, and when I say electronic beats, it's not like trying to be a hip hop record or something like that, but it's got yeah. a lot of electronic percussion. And, you know, we made this record, just the two of us in the studio, like playing everything, playing the bass, playing the percussion, playing the, you know, not a drum kit, but playing the drum or, you know, whatever. And just did, kind did of- Did you make it in New York? We made most of it in Hoboken, New Jersey, in the, in Sonic Youth Studio that we still maintain over there. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. And what about you? I heard the whole record. Yeah. And I loved the fact that you've got all these different collaborators on it and that it, I don't know, I felt like it was really radical sounding. Yeah, good, thanks. Yeah, so it's short. It's only 40 minutes. Okay, ours, and, is, uh, ours is not much longer than that. You know, when I make a record these days, I'm still mostly obsessed with the idea of what a vinyl record is. You get two chances, you know, first song side one, first song side two, last song side one, last song side two. Yeah. And I really like to think about a record like that. So our record is about that too. It's like 42 or 43 minutes, something like that. So it's, you know, in these two like 20, 22 minute blocks. And I, st I still love to list, to think about a record like that because it, it has a good shape to it, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, I would say that our new record this record was sort of done as a, it was a duo. We had collaborators, as you say, but who played vocal roles. But the instruments and the sounds before that all came from either John, the drummer, or me. So my role in this record was guitar, electronics, and that sort of the ether that the guitar gets sent into. And it comes out sort of just being battles music. So some, it, a lot of it becomes sort of unidentifiable stuff but I got to use a lot of different instruments. And in a way I was freed up because I was the only sound maker besides the drum set. It was easier just to move the sonic spectrum, song to song. How do you build those songs? I mean, do you make demos for songs like that? I mean, because there's songs that have a kind of structure that is kind of, kind of baffling to me. It's like... Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think... You know, like previous records, I think we'd been a bit precious and, and maybe sort of like, you know, we're the artist, we'll make the music. And the label doesn't have to listen to like, and we'll say, here's our done record. Whereas I, I, this record, I was actually happy that somebody cared and somebody was like, wanted to listen. So I like was totally open to feedback and people would sort of say, this is good, this is boring. And, and, and really? I, could, I could sort of like adapt and... Did you play stuff for the label during the... Yeah, I was kind of happy to do it this time. I mean, obviously it's in the issue of trust and you have to trust the people. But at this point, I'm like, I, I guess I was confident enough in stuff that I, I still felt like I was in enough control that I could make something good, but I wanted to do it in a context that had response. It's stuff like, just talking to my wife about it, she would be like, this is good, this is bad. Um, so, and John, the drummer, was really helpful in that regard too. He, he and I are sort of very opposite people. He's a very metronomic like precise person like when you get picked up at the hotel lobby at eight in the morning at seven forty-five, he's, he's there. like he's there like with his suitcase like <laughs> just standing there like he's in the military or something whereas i'm like, i'm the 815 guy yeah i'm like <laughs> 820 <laughs> yeah so i mean so and that comes across in our, the way we make music too so he's very like black and white about this is this, that. To me, there's like a million variations and, and you're like, it could be this, it could be that, I don't know. And you, up to the last second, you can make a change or anything. So working with John, he's sort of the opposite of me. And so it, it, it helps me have to sort of sort things out and uh, make hard decisions. 
you know, we didn't play anything for anybody while we were making this record. When I work with this, my friend Raul, we just kind of hole up in the studio and we're, we work away. And I, I don't know if, if you experience this or if your music happens like this, but with this record, you know, if you came into the room and heard what we were doing and then came back three days later, it might sound completely different, like literally like parts thrown out, other parts brought in. I mean, it was really kind of almost like a sculptural process, like chopping things out, like trying things, seeing what works and figuring it out and then figuring out how to layer a vocal on top of it, which is predominantly my role on this record. And we didn't really play anything for anybody. And when it came finally time to send mute the tracks, I was a little apprehensive because they hadn't heard anything. And, and like I said earlier, there's not very much, there's some really amazing blasty moments of, of electric guitar, but there's not a lot of guitar across this record. And, you know, we, we sent it to them and we were like, geez, you know, what are they going to make of this? It's so, so totally different than the last record I turned in, for instance. And to our surprise, they were really, really happy with it. They were just like really excited about it. And, and it kind of gave us a, a shot in the arm in, in a way, you know, having kind of worked on it in isolation. Was, is your new record, is it different than the one you did with Jim Jarmusch? Because that was your last record, right? The one with Jim was like a one-day studio session, just kind of, kind of improv noise. With a, yeah, me and Jim, Escape. Jim Jarmusch playing guitars and, and uh, a rhythm section. Mark Urselli. Mark Urselli. Uh, yeah. I know that guy. So how, how was it, um, like you're a four-piece and then you're a three-piece and then yeah. you're with... Like my collaboration with, with my friend Raul has always been this, just the two of us. We lock ourselves in the studio. You know, it's, it's a really fun process. It, it's one of the most, I don't know, creative uh, musical processes I've ever done and very different from Sonic Youth, obviously, but... You know, I love the idea of this collaborative process, but when, when you're collaborating with two other people or three other people and then it gets whittled away, it must change things a lot in some way. And, you're, rel and you're rely, you guys rely, so all the singing that I heard on your record is, is guests. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So that's interesting too, because that, yeah. they must change. Uh, we would need such a high budget to tour with five singers. It's not going to happen though. But some really cool, cool guest singers. And yeah, you're, so yeah, John Anderson from Yes. That was like the, like, we can't get the guy from Yes, can we? But we did. In, in 2019, like, who's calling the guy from Yes, you know? <laughs> yeah. He, uh, yeah. We'd heard through the grapevine like a long time ago that he liked us. And, yeah, and we had a song and it, it was instrumental and it, it, we kind of referred it to a part as the Genesis part because it sort of sounded like, had like a 70s Genesis thing. You didn't tell him it was the Genesis part, no, did you? No, but I'm telling everybody now. So now everybody knows. But uh, it was kind of like, uh, like old Prague. Let's see if we can get John Anderson. So he was more like the fantasy pick. But then also we had these friends from Taipei called Prairie WWWW. They had opened for us in Taipei. It was kind of like complete weirdo folk, like you could tell like art school damaged kids, like, and they set up on the other side of the room, like on the floor and they had these Excellent. big hats and they were just like whispering into their microphones. It was like so bizarre, but it was awesome. So we, we always remained in touch with them. So we asked those guys to do the same song. And then both John Anderson and Prairie did the same song. So I, I'm pleased we creatively made room for John Anderson's parts and Prairie's parts. In, in one track, not two separate yeah, tracks. Yeah, there's like an yeah, intro. Yeah. It's, okay. it's in Chinese. It's sort of an... Uh, 
How are you going to do these live with, you know, this is one thing that uh, Raul and I are figuring out because we created this record in the studio using a lot of machines and things and, and uh, we're going to gather next month and start to try and figure out how to play the songs live. You know, my record's not coming out till February, so the record company's being a little private about the, the tracks right now and, you know, I'd been asked if we could play a couple tracks in the store and I, I asked them and they were like, well, you know, if you want to play a couple songs, they, they thought I meant like on an acoustic guitar or something like that and like these songs will never never be able to be played like that. And, you know, we're trying to figure out how to do them. But, I mean, you've got all these different vocalists on your record. Yeah. I mean, how do you plan on... I know, it's, it's a hurdle. It, yeah. Uh, you know, you Are you going to sing them? Sing them? Creative <laughs> solutions. No, I know. Oh, I, no, okay. I don't know what's going to happen. But we'll see. I've got a few weeks to figure it out. A few weeks? Yeah. <laughs> While you're starting your tour? Yeah, we're just playing in Peru. Really? Yeah. In Lima? I've never played there, yeah. Have okay, played I, there? I've played there a few times. Sonic Youth played there, you know, in like uh, the late aughts or whatever. And I played there uh, myself just like a year ago. And it's, it's awesome. I'm going to South America in November, but I'm not going to Peru this time. But Peru is freaking awesome. It's really great. Well, but what are so, you going yeah, to do? do? Who's going to sing? You know, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Could you do them without singing? We could. Okay. We could, maybe we'll bring somebody. I don't know. It'll work out, I'm sure. <laughs> you got three weeks to figure this yeah, out. Yeah. You know, I'll tell you a funny story. When I was uh, doing one of my first tours for my last record, we were like a month away from the tour and I still didn't have a drummer. And, you know, I didn't really know what to do about this. And there's this place out in Jersey City called Mana Contemporary. It's a, like an art center. And there's a, a magazine called Tom Tom. It's a magazine for female drummers. And they were having an event there where they had all these girls with drum kits like set up throughout this like six-story building and out on the lawn. And everybody was doing these different drum things all day long. And I, I found my drummer for this tour there, this girl named Chloe Saavedra. And, you know, we were walking into all these different rooms and there were all these drummers playing and, and you know, doing sort of solo, solo drums. And uh, it was the end of the day, the end of the afternoon, and we were on the sixth floor or something. We walked into this room and, like, all the rooms had, like, artworks and stuff and then, like, somebody with a drum kit. And this girl that I'd never met before was, was playing drums in this room. And, like, she was good. She was obviously quite talented. And at one point she got up and started like walking around the drum kit and like playing like this. And then at, at some point she got up onto the bass drum and like stood on the bass drum and was like playing it and stuff. And I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. And like, we, we, we left the room and I was like, what am I doing? She's standing on the bass drum. This is my drummer, you know? And like, I wrote her an email the next day. I was like, I saw you standing on the bass drum. I'm leaving for Europe in like three weeks. Do you want to come on tour? And, and like, she did it and it was, it, was, it was awesome. And she stood on the bass drum every night and it was, yeah, I was, gonna it say. was incredible. <laughs> You'd be like, she's, she's got a band with her drum. sister called Chaos Chaos and they're doing really cool stuff. They, she moved to LA. She's... I have a history of getting really awesome drummers and then having them move to LA. So, uh, <laughs> you know. Tickets to success. Um, so are you a, uh, the type who likes to master a few things really well or the type who likes to experiment with a lot of things and sort of... Things like what? I don't know. Like I always thought that I, I'm better, I'm not really a master of anything. 
and that I'm better that it, sort of being a beginner at a lot of things. Cause it's like the Zen archer archery thing. Mm-hmm. You start off, you have the beginner's luck. Yeah. And then you kind of enter a huge slump of mediocrity for years. And then at the end, you're a master. But I don't, I don't, I've never really gotten to that point. So I just, I just do a lot of starts. Well, I have to say my friend Raul that I work with, he's a master of a lot of things. He's really an amazing producer and he's incredible with all the electronic machines and everything. And I think I'm more like the conceptual guy and, I, and the lyricist, I guess. Although I do say that um, as with my last record, a lot of the lyrics on this new record are collaborations with my friend, the... Uh, author Jonathan Lethem. This is the second record we've done together where we're collaborating on lyrics uh, for different songs. And that's been interesting. You know, the lyrics are a big part of this record for me. And, and Raul's really encouraged me to sing more. And like for the last record, when we were out on tour, it, like it really became more of a, a, a vocal process for me. And, and on this record, that's kind of continued. And you know, the idea of writing lyrics with someone else has changed the whole concept of how you write lyrics. You know, they're less personal. This record has a lot, the lyrics are a lot more collage Like Jonathan would send me stuff from, he lives most of the year in Los Angeles area. And he would send me lyrics, uh, in some cases, having heard some of the tunes and in other cases, just sending me stray lines. And I was doing a lot of collaging with the lyrics on this record, like putting six different pages out on the music stand, some, some his, some mine, and just kind of like, pulling lines here and there and seeing what worked and like building them up more on the level of just like the way the vocal fits the music rather than the meaning of the of the words in a sense but Raul kind of would keep everything together he's he's really a master of all the studio stuff so you know he was holding that part down and and letting me do my thing yeah because you talked about instruments and you're associated with the guitar but in a lot of ways your instrument is more the concept yeah, I mean... You play the concept. Yeah, in a way, for this record, like, we, we, we have a lot of percussion instruments, vibes and marimbas and, and drums and things, and that's, besides the electronics, that's, that's the main thing we were playing. And, you know, one of us would do it because whatever we did, we're mostly getting cut up in the, in the computer after we were laying it down. And there were, there were a couple places where there's, you know, there's a bunch of acoustic guitars and a little bit of electric guitar, but it's really not a guitar-heavy record at all. It's uh yeah. Uh, I don't know. We were we were looking to, to move into another area in a way. I guess. I, uh, one time, a heavy metal guitarist told me that he plays his amp and not his guitar, and I was like, ah. Oh. And then after that, I thought I play my strings, but not my guitar, because I had to come up with my own spot. Well, in Sonic Youth, we used to call it guitar amp action. The guitar, especially with electric guitars, electric guitar is nothing without the amp. So the whole chain from the guitar and the pickups to the amp, like we, we recognized that as the instrument in a way that, yeah. you know, it wasn't just about the, the Les Paul or the Stratocaster or whatever. It was about this chain between the guitar and the amp. So we'd call it guitar amp action. That's what we played. You, you wrote some questions. Yeah, down. I did. It's bad form. It's totally, I'm like, I'm not checking my email. No, okay. I like it. I like it. I'm, you know, I'm on Instagram. No. <laughs> no, I, I did. I wrote down some questions. Do you like the cars? Did you? Um, because Rick Ocasek just died uh, yesterday. We've lost a bunch of. It seems like bunch a bunch of good a people recently. Daniel of, Johnson and a uh, friend died, of mine, yeah. poet Steve Johnson. Well, you like Daniel Johnson, didn't you? A lot. Because Sonic Youth had a thing with... with we him. had a thing with Daniel Johnson, especially in the early days. We kind of uh, were really fascinated by his records. But the cars, I was in school when I first started... Because you were probably getting, old enough that you were like, uh, you were already a cool guy. 
Well, you know, we, like the, we were, the cars were a gateway band for a lot of like ten-year-olds. For to new wave, yeah, yeah, yeah. And whereas, like you, you were probably because like when Nirvana went big time for me, I was already old enough that I was kind of like, you know, come on, like, suspe- Yeah, I was. I was like, <laughs> why do why do all these frat kids like Nirvana now? <laughs> But well, you know, when I was got, starting to get serious about playing music, it was when all those American uh, punk bands were happening. Well, after, like, you know, there was the Sex Pistols and the Ramones, but we were really into Talking Heads and television and uh, Richard Hell and the Voidoids. And I was living in this town called Binghamton, New York, and there was a girl living in my house. And one day she brought home this record by this new wave band called The Cars. And, and like, it, it was kind of like the Archies to us in a way. But, you know, all those songs, it, it didn't seem to have the seriousness of like the New York bands. And it yeah. was, are, are you from Boston? No. Okay. Um, <laughs> it, you know, it had this Boston thing going on. And, and um, <laughs> but, but, you know, those songs all have such staying power, like the, the, especially the first couple of records. I mean, those songs are, are amazing. And, you know, but it wasn't what I was listening to at the time, except on the radio. Right. The, you know, those yeah. songs were all over the radio with good reason. Well, speaking of television and talking heads, the guy from Liquid Liquids on the new Battles record. I know, I heard this. Uh, Sal, Sal Principato. Yeah. Yeah, the, the creator of one of the most sampled uh, bass lines in history, maybe. Yeah. Uh, yeah, white lines, right? Is, it, is that, that what it was first sampled yeah, on? Right. Yeah. What was the Liquid Liquid song called that was. Uh, well, let me say, there are two. They had like a hit like Cavern. Oh, yeah. And then. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Was that Cavern or the other one? There was another one. When uh, they first were around, they were called Liquid Idiot. And oh, yeah. I, re- I remember seeing them like at some small yeah, I was gonna say, club, like tier three or somewhere when they were Liquid Idiot. Then? Yeah. And then they became Liquid Liquid and they put out, they were they on Nine Nine Records, the same label that, uh, yeah, a little bit. They were on Nine Nine Records that had put out Glenn Branca's record and a bunch of cool records, this record store in Soho in the late 70s, early 80s that was putting out like local artists when there were no indie records or indie record labels or anything. Because Sal, Sal's like a real New Yorker, it seems. Mm-hmm. Like, Because mm-hmm. I bet in the 70s when New York was dangerous and unsuccessful, like if you were like... Unsuccessful. Yeah, people like ambitious, like I'm going to make it people... I, well, I, don't, I don't know, you tell me. I mean, because now, you know, New York's like one of these international destinations and so like people from everywhere. But it seemed like back then, like people from Long Island or... New Jersey, but like it wasn't like. The well, same. I don't know. Um, what do you think? You know, there were no record labels. There were no magazines covering that stuff. It, there was it, no it, nothing. It, it was just like it, you were just playing for your friends at you know at, at yeah. Max's or CB's or where, wherever it was. There was no way to get that music out. No, Rolling Stone wasn't covering it. Nobody was covering that music. You know. Right. And in a way, the stuff that Liquid Liquid and ESG was another nine nine band that kind of broke through. Those three three girls from the Bronx. That that those records were were really amazing, and they were they were being played in the early discos like Danceteria and Hurrahs in in the early eighties when when that scene was kind of coming on strong. Like those those clubs weren't playing noisy sonic youth or swans but they were yeah. those records were more danceable. Wait, was there like a divide like culturally between like the people that went to like the the dancier places and the people that went to like well the noisy place you know the the both you know the stuff that was coming out of the bronx this early hip-hop 
you know, we were really into that. It was brand new and fresh. And what we were doing was too. And I mean, there wasn't really a divide on our side because we loved all that music. But I think probably nobody making those records up in the Bronx were listening to Lower Manhattan Noise. You know, they weren't listening to Teenage Jesus and the Jerks or, or DNA or whatever. But to us, it was like these, these brand new musics were happening. And, you know, some of it was hip hop. And some of it was like this kind of new form. Wasn't the rock story and roll. that a- Africa Bambara discovered Kraftwerk at Bleaker Bob's or something like that? He and was then, really influenced by those early Kraftwerk kind of records that got worked kind of, into the sound. Yeah, yeah, it's true. You've got your history down. How uh, long? When did battles start? Two thousand two, December nineteenth. I mean, where are? What block are we on? Because it was on, on your, North Six. We played at North Six, the which is. Oh, North Six. Now, yeah, now, yeah, yeah. now the musical. Is that the first place you played? Uh, yeah. December Sa- 19th. I was I mean, walking down Bedford Avenue and uh, the guy from La Savvy Fab said, hey, we're having our Christmas party show and asked us to open. And I was like, okay. December 19th is the day you played together for the first time or the first no, gig? No, we'd been, we'd been together for, for oh, a few weeks. I don't weeks. remember. It was the, a few weeks. I should probably know for the date reason, of I remember the first that. Sonic Youth That's gig. the only date I remember, actually. What year was it? Uh, 2002? 2002, very end of 2002. Um, wow, that's crazy that you know that. But we were kind of a slow, mo- slow motion band. I mean, we were only on, on our fourth album and it's how many years? Oh my God. Okay. 16. Yeah. So we started then and I had a strategy, which was, because you know, I had been in a few bands on, on this label called Touch and Go. Yeah, and uh, legendary. John, our drummer had been on Ipecac, which is like Mike Patton's label. Mm-hmm. and. So it was kind of like we had a few options, but I, my, my, I was like, I want to ask like a bunch of really small indie labels to release all of our, like divide our records up into multiple singles and have it come out on multiple small independent labels around the country. I was thinking geographically, we need East Coast, South, Midwest, West Coast. See, Good this, idea. This, this, this sounds so conniving. But uh, it, <laughs> no, like, it sounds creative. But then everyone was like, like each label was like, you want us to release it on the same day as the other labels? And I was like, yeah. And, uh, and we kind of got it to happen. But because the idea was I didn't want anyone to know about us at first because we didn't really know what we were doing. So we had to figure out our style a bit. And uh, it actually, I think it, it sort of worked because we sort of bounced around for a few years and kind of got our sound. And then Warp Records asked us to make a record. And that was a more high-profile high release, and that, uh, and by that, and that was like our first album, Merit, and we kind of had our act together more, more than because I just, I just didn't want to be judged right away with a record, you know what I mean? Like, oh, you're that thing, uh-huh. you know? Well, these days it's so hard to to have that happen. People judge, you know, new bands. I mean, it's kind of like somebody puts out a record and everybody's heard it on the internet and judges it immediately. And like back then you could kind of like, when we yeah. put out our first records, like nobody heard them for years in some cases. Yeah, no and one, you know, yeah. you could kind of uh, stew a little bit and get your, get, people, your, get your spices people. together yeah. or whatever. So that know? probably makes it hard. Maybe because I, I don't know about this. It, it, are there less bands coming out now? I don't think I so. Tell. No? I think there's more. Oh, uh, more? There's more that you have access to anyway. Yeah, we have, yeah. You know. Well, but that's funny that you wanted really to fast. do that because Thurston has a re- Thurston from Sonic Youth has a record coming out in just a couple of weeks and Kim has a record coming out like five weeks after that and then my record is a few weeks after that and at one point I had this brilliant idea that we should all release our records on the same day. <laughs> but uh, it didn't, it, it, it's not happening. <laughs> <laughs> 
what do you listen to when you're like when you're I mean your music is really been, eclectic and I, I was listening to it and wondering like where are your influences coming oh. from? Because, you know, my record has got a lot of electronics, but it's also got a lot of kind of folk music tendencies, and I've been calling it kind of electronic folk because it's got a lot of acoustically recorded instruments mixed with these kind of machine-made electronic sounds and beats. And, and it's, it's kind of, I feel like it's a pretty nice balance. I mean, you hear some things and you hear an acoustic guitar, and then you hear like a drum machine or something, and they're kind of integrated and I've kind of got this idea of where we're coming from, but I listened to your record and I was, I'm really curious as to like where your influences are coming from or like what you're listening to or... Where I cut my teeth was in the 90s and like on Touch and Go Records and I always sort of identified with that, that thread kind of maybe going, going back to Albini in the 80s and for lack of a better phrase, that Midwest kind of rock ethic Bands like the Jesus Lizard and everything uh-huh. like that. But, but when I started playing as a young pup, I realized that those bands were so much tougher and meaner and cooler than I, than I was. <laughs> it, and so that I, and I was a really poor version of those things. And I would never add up to that. So, you know, I never looked good in a leather jacket or anything like that. Really? So, like, I had to kind of sort of be in my own weird little branch. And I've just sort of stayed there for a long time. But I, so I still feel like the initial impulse is that sort of Midwest guitar rock thing, but it's so completely evolved through different kinds of instruments. You know, the context of battles were on warp, which kind of has a, an electronic sure. heritage. And we, we always sort of had our foot in two worlds that way. And, you know, in a sense, so what happened with like the loop pedal, like I started using a loop pedal in the late 90s with Don Cab, it was just a guitar into a loop pedal. But it was like a riff. It was like, here's a riff. It was rock and roll. But the riff repeats digitally. And then all of a sudden, as soon as that happens, it's sort of like a photograph of your guitar playing as opposed to your actual guitar playing. Yeah, that's a good way to say it. And so it automatically kind of gets quoted or something, and it becomes this thing that you can manipulate and play with and make it go backwards, chop it up, or you know, go herky-jerky, whatever you want on it. So suddenly you're, you're manipulating your own thing. So I, obviously you're kind of out of rock context now and and then you know i started playing with john the drummer and he you know he had been in that in that band helmet in the 90s which was oh, yeah, obviously right. kind of like hardcore punk slash rock wh- whatever that. that prototype of new metal yeah for <laughs> sure but uh and they worked at wharton tears studio a lot where yeah sonic he made Youth their made first our, uh record or yeah, something. And, yeah and he made sonic Youth's early records too yeah but john's really an electronic music fan so I mean, he's that guy who, you know, listens to techno records like 10 hours a day on his headphones. Really? (laughs) But, you know, and also hip hop. So like his rhythmic language is that stuff. So he expresses it through his acoustic drums. So like our vocabulary kind of actually has a way of creating a totality that doesn't totally clash. So... You know, he loves sort of playing like an acoustic hip hop beat on his drums, almost sort of like in quotes, like this is my reggaeton drum beat. But mm-hmm. that, and and I'll, it, as you manipulate loops on top of it, and it, and then you know, obviously, like I said, being the master of a few things or sort of just barely knowing what you're doing with a lot of things, I, I'm, I'm more the second, and so I'm always sort of trying out new instruments and new equipment trying to make new sounds that su- surprise me. It's funny, machines have their own logic, right? And they yeah. do things that you're like, what the hell is going on? 
but sometimes it's pretty amazing. And one thing we did that I really loved on our record is, you know, we 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 got all these really high tech modern machines that Raul's pretty good at manipulating. But we also pulled out this old. I have this weird old uh, cassette deck that was made by the Library of Congress in the 60s or 70s. And it was made for, I don't, I don't know exactly how they used it, but it was made for blind people. And you could slow down the cassette or speed it up. You could hit a button and play the other side, which would be normally backwards. And it had all these weird things you could do. And, and it was super lo-fi, but like really interesting machine. And so we were using a lot of old cassette tapes that we were popping into this machine and like playing and like slowing them down and speeding them up. And there's this kind of aspect of this really old analog sound going on as well, like this really crude, like lo-fi, noisy, hissy kind of cassette sound mixed with these kind of like modern instruments and then some acoustic stuff that we were recording in the studio. Uh, I think we found a nice blend in a way. Yeah, I think be, I might have heard some of that that you played that you're talking about. You know, going back to the previous question you had for me, since so I'm sitting next to you, I'll, I, I should say, I really do think that when I was... In high school, in sort of early college years, like Sonic Youth was sort of the vanguard. I thought of like this thing. And that was, you guys were another one. I was like, like, that's the shit, but I'll never, at best, I would just be like, you know, third rate Sonic Youth. So I got to figure <laughs> out another trick. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, like you guys, everybody you guys has really to figure that, that out. That, everybody that has space. to figure that out. You've all, everybody's got their heroes that they, they wish they could be as good as or whatever, but yeah. you, you got to f- kind of push that aside and find your, yeah. find so, your own thing. It's, it's so in a weird way, like I've always played with rhythm stuff and I think it'll, it, there are many influences that ended up pushing me where I went, but I rhythm was more of a thing to play with for me because like, you know, like... Because we had the noise. Was, was already owned yeah. so yeah. well. Yeah, we had already got the noise down. Yeah, but yeah, I still think, I think... Like the commitment to the totality of like the thing, the way you, you guys did it, I think that, that, that did influence me. So, Well, we had a really collaborative situation going. We were really four people that were collaborating on the music that we were making. And when Sonic Youth stopped, there was a period where, you know, I took on that whole mantle of like, okay, I'm going to write the songs and I'm going to kind of lead the band. And then at a certain point, I met Raul and found a new collaborator where we could kind of bounce stuff back and forth in that same way where, you know, you end up with these tracks or whatever you, you create that you can't say, I made that. You know, in the same way with Sonic Youth, we really all claimed like we wrote this, we wrote most of the material together, aside from, aside from talking about lyrics. And now I've kind of got that again. And I really like that social aspect of music. You know, it wasn't as much fun to be the dominant role as to, as to have yeah. someone to bounce yeah. off of and, and to just be, you know, someone to say like, that's a good idea. That's not a good idea. Let's, let's go in this direction, you know, like to have a yeah, little I rudder. Know, I know. Yeah, when I started Battles, I really didn't want to be in a band again. And I subconsciously started a band. Did you start it? Yeah. It was started as a solo project. It was called It Will, which is kind of my name, Ian Williams. And mm-hmm. I started, I played with Ty and Dave and then eventually John joined. And when John joined the drummer, I was like, I, I think this should be a band and not my thing. Mm-hmm. And so it became a band. And, and John was like, the, the enthusiast, he's like, this is awesome. We have to make, you know, who's going to put on our record? Okay, we have to go on tour. And like, and I'm <laughs> like, like, what, am I doing a band again? Oh my God. And, yeah. But I think in a weird subconscious way, I, I wanted that. I wanted that, like 
the collaboration thing. You, you wanted know? to go to all those shitty little clubs and sit in those crappy dressing rooms and yeah, yeah, <laughs> you were dying to do it. Yeah. <laughs> and look at us now. We're in a we're in a clothing store. <laughs> a pretty good one, I have to say. Yeah, it's organic. On that note of collaboration, audience, we are going to collaborate with you just a little bit here. We want to invite you to take a moment and think of any questions you might have for Lee and for Ian. As they're getting some mics going around, we have some questions from uh, socials leading up to this. Okay. For Ian, via Twitter, at Satorical, not Sartorial, Satorical, you've described how you nearly drove a producer nuts with 16, parentheses, e.g., different versions of every loop. Were things any different on this album? I think maybe that's referring to that I would do, what, 20 takes of a line. And, you know, the guy recording or producing would listen to, like, the first two and then be like, okay, that's good enough. (laughs) And I'd be like, no, by the 19th, I was playing it a little bit differently. We should really listen to that. And, you know, it's kind of like, I realized the, the only person who has the patience to weed through my own shit is me. (laughs) <laughs> and you always end up using the first or second one anyway yeah <laughs> often i, I recently a, a visual analog to that story is that i you know we, we have a new record so you take band pictures which is always goofy so when you weed through the photos and you're like oh i look kind of stupid there i don't like my hair i've realized if you're the subject of the photo you always pick the worst ones because you even if you don't think you are you're still sort of vain and you were like oh i don't want to look fat or whatever <laughs> and and then but it's totally, you're not picking the best picture. You're just picking the one where you look better. Where you think you look better. Yeah, and you, you're actually often wrong. And that in an objective third party actually knows better. I always find it's like, it's sort of like a sound check where the guitarist wants the guitar much louder. Like everyone in the band looks at the oh, picture yeah. and they pick the one where the other dude looks shitty. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Lee, one for you from uh, Instagram. Devin4932 asks... Is it true that Sonic Youth had to bring dozens of instruments on tour? How annoying did it get? <laughs> annoying? It was, we, we had people to carry them. So it wasn't, <laughs> uh, it wasn't annoying at all. I mean, it was, it was great. You know, in 1999, Sonic Youth had this huge, uh, we were on tour and we got our van full of gear stolen. And there were, between guitars and basses, there were about 30 and custom builds. Yeah, custom built, a lot of modified stuff. But that wasn't kind of the norm for us in that period. We'd carry like 25 or 30 guitars and basses just because they were all tuned differently or whatever. And, you know, people would joke that we were like a traveling guitar store. But, like, it was super <laughs> cool to have all those guitars out on tour. It, was, it wasn't ever, ever a problem because as we got better known, we had, like, more and more crew to carry all that stuff and deal with it. So... Oh my God, I was on the side of the stage for a Wilco show like a year or two ago. And they must have had like a hundred guitars in these gigantic heavy cases. Like there was no way they could possibly use that many <laughs> guitars, even in a tour, not let alone in one night. So like I felt much better that we, we only had 20 you know, I think maybe I had eight or nine and Thurston had about the same and Kim had two or three and, and a bass or something. But if you've got the manpower, it's cool. That's the trick, pay someone else to carry them, right? <laughs> yeah. All right, we, I saw a few hands go up in the crowd. The gentleman with the blonde hair? I'm very curious, Ian. Now that you guys have pared down from four to three to two, how how's that changed the songwriting process? Well, in a certain way, it's easier because 
I can now just do what I want to do. I mean, <laughs> I mean, now John. I mean, John has to be on board too and be into it. But it, you know, convincing one person that something's worthwhile is a lot easier than convincing two other people, which is easier than four. And, and also because we were always technologically tethered in the sense of like Dave, when we were a trio, would set his loop in an echoplex and he'd be like, it takes me 16 measures to build this thing. So I have to do something for 16 measures before I can do something else. It made everything wow. slower. It's, uh, that sounds weird. Yeah. It would, I mean, <laughs> yeah. Or sometimes it was more like 64 measures, but it felt more spelt because it was just kind of like, we can do this and we can do that. So the music can move around more. All right. Uh, I saw another hand uh, over here. Um, yeah. Uh, two questions. One for uh, Leonardo first. And I, I know you play the guitar definitely in the concept. Then I was wondering what your hardware that you really interface with or connected to on this album was. And it sounded like the Library of Congress tape recorder. But yeah. I was wondering if there was some kind of new machine that you also connected with. And then a question for Ian. I'm, I'm just surprised... You had an interesting thing going with the vocals and kind of singing on with, with Storm and Stress, so I'm surprised you haven't done that with the last two albums or even just like played around with it. This guy is definitely a musician. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, um, we've been using these instruments made by this company from Sweden called Electron. They're really amazing machines, and uh, they're something that Raul knew about and that we used a lot on, on this record. But, you know... I don't really like talking about the technical side of things too much. I have a, I have a friend on the West Coast who's still an, an aspiring musician, and he sent me a picture of his pedal board last night. He was like, look at my pedal board. It's super cool. And it was all these, like, super modern, like, digital effects. And I was like, Jeff, I really can't stand all that shit. Like, it's like, <laughs> it, it, like each pedal can do a thousand different things, and you've got to find the one that you want. I'm like, I, I really like these old school pedals where it like it only can do one thing but it does it really well and like that's plenty fine for me so i don't get too bogged down in the technical side but i'm happy to have a partner who's really adept at all that stuff so i can kind of leave him to a lot of that stuff you know and just think about melodies and and structures and stuff ian i didn't know you'd been singing with storm and stress oh yeah well see it, okay it was the 90s vibe it was a much less professional world back then <laughs> And, uh, no YouTube to catch the fuck-ups. In a certain sense, I, I was a bad singer, but it was, in, back then it didn't really matter. <laughs> Are you heckling me? <laughs> so, so, well, no, but no, here's the, the storm and stress aesthetic I was going for was the sound after the apocalypse. You don't have to be a good singer after the apocalypse because <laughs> everything's fucked at yeah, that point. Yeah, everybody's a zombie then. Yeah. So it was kind of like that. I was going for that. Like I had been hit by a steamroller, but that was my character. But, sir, to answer your question, I, I do think I'm interested in singing again. I am. I've written a song now. <laughs> uh, but Wanna hear it? I, here it goes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I would like to try it again. But yeah, you're right. I didn't do it. We didn't do it this time. It was like the guy from Yes or Me. What am I going to do? Yeah, really? Well, one you thing that you guys that? did, <laughs> one thing Battles did, maybe a couple tours ago, when you and I first met at a festival in Spain, you all were touring with a huge LED screen. And I remember this because I was at a, I don't remember if it was Primavera Festival maybe or something, and I said, is Gary Newman playing the fest? And it wasn't Gary Newman playing the fest. It was the collaboration Battles had done with Gary Newman, and he was the 50-foot face on the yeah, screen. That's right. That's yeah, right. so yeah. Is, is that you a thought? traveling with an LED screen? Yeah. 
An inflatable Gary Newman, 50 feet. It was great. <laughs> no, it was an LED. But no, actually, that was the festival's LED. That's a little ah, trick. Gotcha. Uh, it's tricky because like we, we contemplate doing things like that again, but this is probably a little too in the weeds for a general conversation at a fashion store. But, you know, when you show up at a festival, you're like, they have LEDs, we'll use them. But if they, sometimes at a festival, you're in this, a tent and, you know, there's some big pop star on the main stage with the big LEDs and you don't get it. So it's, it's, it's tough to bank on getting the LEDs. And we have toured with our own LEDs, but it's very expensive. It is. Got to have that Sonic Youth money for that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> really? I know. Saw a couple more hands. Gentleman at the back there. Uh, being from the Washington, D.C. area, I grew up listening to a lot of the punk that came out of there. You know, just a few names, Bad Brains, Minor Threat, eventually Fugazi. Curious to know, what are your impressions of that scene? And has anything, has anything that's come out of that era influenced you in the way you make music? Well, I mean, that stuff was all happening when Sonic Youth was starting, and we, we became friends with a lot of those bands, especially, you know, the guys from Minor Threat in particular, and it was hugely influential. There was just so many people trying to, like, shake the bones of rock and roll and do something different with it, you know, people that grew up with electric guitars and, and pop music and were trying to do different things, and that was one of the, the principal scenes at that point that people were looking to, you know, for inspiration was what was going on in, in Washington area, for sure. I mean, I don't know if that's before your time or, you, you know, that's... Yeah, the minor threat wave was before my time, but uh, I... Fugazi? Of course forgot. I mean, I saw them every time they came to Pittsburgh, I saw them. Is that where you're from? The region. Okay. Western Pennsylvania. But uh, I went to uh, many a Fugazi show. And uh, of course, always a fantastic live band, right? Indeed. Yeah, I wish I saw my threat. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think we have time for one more question. Yeah, there you are. Hello. Hi. I just want to say thank you for um, taking the time to come and speak about your artistry here in uh, Williamsburg. That's my daughter crying. <laughs> <laughs> what? What's her name? Her name is Ivy Olivia. Ivy She's Olivia. She's a month old. Oh, oh congratulations. Wow, and this is Daddy. Welcome to your first podcast, Ivy Thank Olivia. Thank <laughs> So uh, my question is, what kind of advice would you give for an upcoming musician? I am a musician. I've been playing guitar and piano and singing my whole life. If you need a singer. Hey. Um, what kind of advice would you give for an upcoming artist? He does artist? need a singer. You do? Well, and also, it's do true. you work with local artists? And I have my business cards, if you're okay. <laughs> Nice. We're going to Peru in a few weeks. Oh, okay. I'm, I speak. Can you stand on the drum kit? Um, actually, I play percussion also, and I'm also songwriter, singer. But I just wanted to know, like, what do you would give advice for an artist that's trying to break into this scene right now besides, like, putting your music on title and things like that? and streaming apps and um, podcasts and things of that sort? Well, the real specifics of any answer would probably be beyond me because I think music's always... The business side seems to be changing all the time. But I can tell you a general answer, and I, th I actually think music is one of the more democratic art forms in the sense that you can still get... Act like your corner coffee shop or bar or anything you know you can say can i play wednesday night and i can promise like my 25 friends will come and buy drinks or something you know what i mean you can actually get a platform pretty easily i, I more easily than our, other art forms i find it's not like making a movie or something so 
I mean, that's like the good news, I think. That's, that aspect is always there. And also now, I guess, with the internet, everybody can put music up on SoundCloud or Bandcamp or something. But then the problem is that there's so much noise and so much culture exploding every day that who has time to listen to any of it? So getting people to go to your show, that's a whole other story. Well, this is a question that always comes up. Like, what advice do you have for someone that's coming up? Like, what do you do? And it's a hard question to answer, but I think the main thing is that you just have to, you kind of have to believe in what you're doing and just keep doing it no matter what and try and tune out as many influences as, as you can and try and make it your own as much as you can. And I don't know, there's really no magical formula that you can turn on and get success or get noticed. But I think the people that I listen to that I find most interesting are just these people that are kind of single-minded and they're, they're doing something really unique or individual. And it doesn't sound like what everybody else is doing. Not because they're like, I'm not going to sound like anybody else, but just because it's, it's very uniquely them, you know, and, and you really sense their personality coming off it. You know, so I mean, I think the thing is you just have to kind of believe in yourself and keep doing what you think is, is good and keep following your own little, your own dream in a way, as corny as that sounds. My answer is uh, tour in an indie band that opens for much bigger bands but never makes it for 10 years, then switch to hosting and have a lot more stability and money. <laughs> that's your scene? That's your situation? That's, yeah, that's, uh, that's my recommendation. Podcast. It's never, it's <laughs> never um, except for financially, it's never rewarding to open for another band. Oh, totally. It's just yeah. like, uh, thank you. Thank yes. you. Thank you. I am so Thanks. into this. These are Noel okay. Whippler. Yes. Okay. Excellent. I had lunch with Vagabond today, who's an amazing artist here in New York. And one of the things we were talking about is how much we love people who are willing to just put their shit out there and hustle. And I love it. I just absolutely adore it. So I want to give one more shout out. Noel Whippler. That's awesome. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, we're, we're at an end time for our event. I want to give big thanks to Blake and Kelly here in the store, to uh, Mark, who's our producer, Mark Yoshizumi behind the boards there, to Everlane for having us, and of course, to Ian Williams and Lee Ronaldo, and to all of you. Stick yeah, thanks, around, thanks have a drink. Coming. We'll be hanging out. Have a drink. Yeah, let's have a drink. Lee Ronaldo, Ian Williams, thank you so much for joining us again on the TalkHouse podcast. You can catch some great photos of this event on all of our socials at TalkHouse. Today's talk was recorded at Everlane Williamsburg by Stefan Kimball Olson and Mark Yoshizumi, who's also our producer. Listeners, you can catch Lee and Ian's first episode together from three years back in the podcast archives at TalkHouse.com. The TalkHouse podcast theme song was composed and performed by The Range. Till next week, I'm Elia Einhorn. Peace! And Juice Be Crypts. 